I'm her favorite, so. I bumped Pastor Matt, so I'm okay with that. The Bible says I'm allowed to brag in those things, so no, it doesn't actually, so don't ever. We're uh, Happy New Year. My, my name is Pastor Nate. I'm one of the pastors here, and that song that uh, Pastor Matt was singing today uh, is something that we'll be introducing shortly, but it's not I, but through Christ in me. I think I got that right. Um, close enough. But it's by City of Lights. If you want, you can look it up on your Spotify or Apple Music and add it to your playlist. But it's just a great song. A friend of mine would use the word Bible-y, uh, and it's very Bible-y, and it's really good. So, let me ask you this question. As we enter into this new year, I saw some mockery of uh, New Year's resolutions online by some people here, and they're not here, so uh, they're lucky because I could have poked at them, but that's okay. It's a new year, it's a new you, hey, 2020, let's keep Jesus, you know, all the corny things that are going to come through 2020. But uh, oftentimes what comes with New Year's is New Year's resolutions. So let me ask you this question, who's ever done a New Year's resolution? Come on. Be honest. All right. Oh, come on. Like, 90% of you are lying. In church, okay? All of you have done a New Year's resolution. Even some of you are shaking your heads up and down because you didn't want to put your hand up. Because the next follow-up question we all know is this. How many of you have actually kept it? This is when I put my hand down. Because we haven't kept it at all. You know, we, 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 we have these New Year's resolutions, we try to have a new start, it's a new year, we try to have a, a better you in, in the whatever year, better you in 2020, you know, all these wonderful things. I don't really quite understand New Year's resolutions, because as I said, I, nobody keeps them, uh, except for like the two of you, but we'll have this conversation after to see how faithful <laughs> you were in doing that. Because I wasn't and haven't ever been faithful in doing that. I remember younger going, all right, I'm going to read the Bible every day. And let's be honest, that never happened because there was computer games and something else that came up that was way more important, right, than spending time in God's, in God's Word. But not too long ago, a couple of years ago or a few years ago, I, I thought to myself, you know what, I really need to start getting a little healthier. I need to start going to the gym. So that's what I did. Got a gym membership. And I didn't do it during New Year's because I don't understand New Year's. Why do you have to wait for a new year to actually do something better? Like, that's just an excuse. That's called procrastination. All right? So I did that, and I tried to get healthy, and I've been doing that pretty good, pretty well. I'll get into some hiccups every once in a while, but, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with having resolutions, things that you're seeking to do better at. There's a man in history, in church history, named Jonathan Edwards, who had 70 resolutions. He had a list of 70 resolutions that he set out purposely to resolve in his life. He didn't get them all done because you can actually see through the list a date beside them on how he did it and when he accomplished, when he finally resolved. Because some of them are really just a lifelong thing. But he has 70 of them. And he opened up his resolutions with this statement, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, which is probably why most of us fail in our resolutions, but 
I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. Remember to read over these resolutions once a week. That's how he opens up his list of 70. The 70 are divided into seven sections, talking about overall life mission, good works, time management, relationships, suffering, character, spiritual life. In his section on spiritual life, he even divides it into even more subsections, talking about the assurance of salvation, reminding himself that he is indeed saved by the grace of God every day. You notice how this man who preached more sermons to more people than any of us have probably ever known in our entire lives needed to be reminded weekly and daily about who he is in Christ. But as he continues to dwindle it down, he, he has resolutions about the Bible, about his reading, about Sunday worship. Although I think you went a little too strict on that one. We talked about not being entertained. And I was like, what? Okay. I guess no Netflix in the 1700s. <laughs> but he sought to continue to actively grow in Christ. He sought to kill sin in his life. He actually used that word. The mortification of sin was one of his resolutions. That he would continue to work out to kill the sin that's in his life. And you talked about self-examination, communion with God, but something that we're going to be talking about today is he had resolutions on prayer. He talked about prayer. In, verses, in, in, in resolution 29 and 64, he says, Resolved never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it. He never prayed a prayer without believing that God would do it. What a bold statement. Nor that as a confession that I cannot help God will accept. So in his prayer, he went off, he said, God, if I'm going to ask for something, I'm going to pray in terms that I know that you can accomplish it because nothing is impossible. But he also prayed in confessions, you know how sometimes we haphazardly say I'm sorry because we're Canadian and we do it all the time. I'm sorry. But you never really mean it. Right? That's what he was countering to, that apathy. In, in the 64th resolution, he said, Resolved, when I find those groanings which cannot be uttered, Romans 8, if which the apostle speaks, and those breakings of soul for the longing it hath, of which the psalmist speaks, that I will promote them to the utmost of my power, and that I will not be weary or of earnestly endeavoring to vent my desires, nor the repetition of such earnestness. You catch that? He never gave up, he always prayed continuously, constantly, would always pray. So for this year, and for many more to come, let us resolve to do this, knowing that we can't do anything without God's help, to be a people of prayer. But what does that even look like? How do we do it? 
And Paul, in two quick little verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, says it. So if you have your Bibles with you, please follow along with me. And it says this in chapter, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 to 12. The word of the Lord says, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, we just come together to continue to worship you to lift up your name and to glorify you. And as we look into your word, Lord, I pray that indeed you are uh, indeed glorified. Lord, I cannot preach this sermon outside of, of, of your will, outside of you making this turn out well. So Lord, by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. First point is this. Praying so that we may grow to be more like Christ. That's what Paul is asking of us in verse 11. That we, his, the church here in Thessalonica would grow in Christ's likeness. The purpose of this prayer is laid out in two clauses. The first one is what we see in verse 11. It's a request that God would indeed make the people grow in Christ. And he opens up to this end. The NIV uses the words with this in mind. See, context matters when we're looking at verses. When you're, when you're going to take two verses out of a context, you need to understand the context, or you just come up with weird translations and weird life verses that don't make sense. And in this context, Paul is talking about the judgment of Christ coming, that the evidence of, of the people's salvation is actually their persecution. And he's, he's reminding them that at the end of time, at the end of time when Christ finally comes to judge, Christ will judge all of those who are inflicting so much suffering and pain upon the Thessalonican church. He was reminding them of the hope that they have. So Paul comes and he, he, he comes to this. And he says, in this context, he says, to this end, we always pray for you. His prayers for the church weren't sporadic. They weren't occasional. But they were constant and faithful. Daily. Always. His investment in prayer was was robust and, and rigorous. He was a person of prayer who was humbly depending on his Lord. And as I was reflecting upon this myself... This always pray for you part. I'm reminded of growing up, and my parents weren't supposed to be here, so they're here. So I'm still talking, because I can't change it, it's too quick. So I remember growing up, and every morning I would wake up, and I would actually see my parents in their offices, they had separate offices, where they would spend time in prayer every morning opening up the word of God and praying. That's what I'm reminded of when I think about what Paul says here. We always 
pray for you. His prayers were constant and faithful. They weren't sporadic or occasional. Oftentimes, I, you can ask someone, hey, how's your spiritual walk with God going? How's your walk with God? And they say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm praying. Well, what does that mean? You're just praying? You know, uh, what, what is guiding those prayers? When are you praying? How are you praying? All of these things, like, what are you doing? For, for Paul, he's praying with this constant and faithful aspect. Yes, there's time when we're praying to God as we're driving and we're like, God, you know, I'm really just burdened right now to pray for. But for Paul, for the apostle, he's, he's, he's being purposeful. He's, he's got it planned. He's sitting down and he's praying for the purpose of this that they would grow in Christ's likeness. So he always does it. He had a constant concern for the church. And what does this, this look like? How is he doing this? Where are these prayers coming from? What is Paul praying for? He continues on in this text. He says that our God may make you worthy of his calling. That's a loaded statement, by the way. See, the word call is this idea of urgently investing someone to accept responsibility for a particular task. There's a a new relationship that has happened. When God calls you out of darkness and into his kingdom of light, there is a, a transformation that happens. And with that transformation, there comes responsibilities. You don't get to coast for the rest of your life if you call yourself a Christian. So Paul comes and he prays this very important prayer. He says that our God may make you worthy of his calling. God has called you. Now live in such a way. God calls you to himself. In that call, there is a responsibility to live as a child of God. So Paul prays something that I pray for myself, that I pray for you. May I walk in a way worthy of the gospel. I was reminded of this talking with my wife uh, as she was reading through the Bible, how she was constantly reminded over and over again how many times Paul says this statement in all of his letters. He says to the church, may you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, of your call. May you live as children of God. What is this calling? This is a calling that was to a lifestyle that was conformed to God's will. As God calls and that call transforms our lives, it transforms our desires and we seek to follow him. In theological terms, we call this sanctification. That those whom Christ has justified, he sanctifies. But we've got to look back to verse 5. Endurance of the persecution was evidence that they were worthy of the kingdom of God. And as I said, Paul, throughout his letters, he reminds Christians to walk in a manner worthy. He says this all over. See, God's electing call leads us into God's kingdom and glory, inviting the Christians to respond by following God's ways. The future promises that are given in verse 7 there, just up above it, it says this. 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That relief that that is talking about brings an obligation in the present time. That is what the apostle is praying for. May they walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that they have received. So Paul prays about this constantly, always. Second thing that Paul is praying for is that they may may fulfill every resolve to to do good and every work of faith. That every act prompted by your faith, that literally they would have a desire to actually continue to walk in a way that is in Christ-likeness. That they would, as a church, love each other as Christ has loved them. That they would practice the one another's that are found within the word of God. That they would be united as, as diverse as they are. That they would be united as a people under the cross. So Paul prays that they would depend on the resources of God as they actively work to walk in a way worthy of this call. His prayers for the church weren't sporadic. They weren't occasional. They were constant and faithful. He was investing in this task of prayer. The Apostle Paul calls it wrestling. It is work. And for someone like me who takes like, I swear I have ADD or something. I can't sit for a long period of time. It is work to sit and to be purposeful, to pray. So Paul says these things. And in the, in, the, in the light of resolutions, I was thinking about going to the gym. If you show up at the gym, you know, you go and you show up, you, you, you sign up, you get your membership, and you're locked in for a year. And if you forget, you're locked in for another year. And so on, so on, so on unless you pay the fees to get out. If I, if I show up to the gym, if I just simply show up, can I expect to get healthy? Right? If I buy all the healthy food in the world and I put all of those in there, a friend of mine, a fellow pastor here in London, I won't say his name, he sent me a picture of how his diet has been like completely eliminated as his wife made butter tarts. <laughs> And then I was looking at the picture, and they looked really good. Uh, but I said, you do know, like, in the same picture, there was, like, fruits and vegetables. I was like, you do have an... It was like a literal picture, right, of, of decisions that he could make. If I just show up to the gym, can I expect to lose weight? The answer is no. If I buy healthy food and choose to eat chips instead, can I expect anything to change? Or eat the healthy food and then add on chips which is what I do. (laughs) See, Paul is saying, yes, you are called by God. It is a complete work of grace, but there's a tension that is being created here. You are called by God's grace. It is not a work of yours. The Bible is very clear on that. You had nothing to do with your salvation. Christ died for you because you couldn't pay the debt. We understand that that is the gospel, that Christ has died for our sins. There is a debt to be paid that we cannot pay. So if I don't rely upon what Christ has done, if I add anything to it or take anything away from it, it is, I am not saved. 
I have to believe in the gospel. But because I am saved, because I'm called, God enables me to walk in a way that is worthy of the call that he has given me. Because those who are justified will be sanctified. Just like going to the gym just doesn't make me healthy. There is an action that has to go with it. There is a struggle that comes with it. I have to get on that elliptical and get my heart rate up and and all those fun things and lift weights and do all those things that we suddenly need a building to do that people for thousands of years didn't need. But then he goes on, he says, why do we need to pray? Because all of these things are done by his power, as he says. Paul is coming to the church and says that God is the ultimate source of the good they do and how they can do what they have been called to do. It all depends on God's intervention in their lives. It's held in tension with us. Fulfill every resolve. Another translation says that he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness. The good works come out of a true faith and are done for everyone's benefits. So what is Paul praying? His prayers for the church weren't, again, sporadic or occasional. They were purposeful. They were purposeful. They were faithful. They were constants. He invested in this, this robust and rigorous activity of prayer. He was a person of prayer who was humbly depending on his Lord. He is constantly praying for his church, for himself, to do and to be all that God has called him to be. You know, I think about how many people were brought up to think of what prayer is, and prayer is often found, remember Aladdin, the Disney classic? You know how much revolves around that lamp? The whole movie revolves around people's desires to become everything that they want, so they they need to find this golden lamp and rub it so this genie can come up. Is that not how we often approach God, the holy God, in our prayer? Dear Lord, please give me that raise. Right? I deserve these things. It's amazing how much revolves around this thing. Prayer is me coming to God, telling him my needs and leaving him to deal with it as he sees fit, not how I see fit. This makes me... This makes my will subject to his, not the other way around. A.W. Pink said it this way, the popular belief about prayer reduces God to his servants, our servants, doing our bidding, granting our desires. So we combat that by praying according to what the Bible models for us. The Bible models for us what is and how to pray. That is what God's Paul's prayers here in, to the church in Thessalonica. The Bible either tells us something about God and Christ when we are reading so that we can praise him, or the Bible tells us something about what God and Christ and the Holy Spirit have done so that we can thank him and express faith in it, or the Bible tells us what God expects from us so that we can cry out for help. Or they tell us about something we fail to do, 
so that we can confess our sins or all of them at the same time. The whole Bible is doing one or more things for us, telling us something about God, something about what he has done, something about what he expects, something about how he, we have failed. It's through these four things that causes us to praise God, thank him, cry to him for help, and confess our sins. The word of God guides us and models for us how to pray. And that is what Paul is doing here in verse 11. So he comes along and he's praying that they would grow in more Christ-like behavior. But then he begins praying so that our lives, their lives, will bring more glory to Christ in verse 12, as it says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's answering, why is he praying this way? The intended result of prayer is the glorification of Christ and his people. So Paul continues to pray as a resulting clause after the purpose statement in verse 11. See, the prayer we see in verse 12 will only happen if verse 11 is fulfilled. A church that God counts worthy and in which God is powerfully working, will bring glory to the name of Christ and be glorified themselves. So he says, why? That the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. So what does it mean to glorify someone? To glorify someone is to honor someone, to give them their due. Right? It's like us thanking Gay Bolton, for all her hard work that she's done over these last few months and filling in at the office. It's me saying something like, hey, I remember I, I called her. I don't even remember why I called her. And all she said to me is, what do you need, Pastor? And I went, oh, don't you know. <laughs> it's about elevating someone, giving them great honor. It means to be the object of great honor, to receive honor and to be honored. That's why Jesus prays in John 17, 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. See, when the name is glorified, the person is glorified. So Paul says, as these people grow and walk in a way that is worthy of their calling, they will begin to bring glory to Christ. God may be glorified or praised for his great works, as Galatians 1 says. But you know what else brings him great glory? When his people actually act like his people. What a great testimony. That's how we're light in darkness. He is also glorified by the actions of his people when they are obedient, when they are generous, when they are sexually pure, and when they live in harmony with one another because we have become most satisfied in him. Christ-like behavior is more important than words of praise in the glorifying of the Lord. For praise from a life transformed by the power of the Spirit rings true and sweet. But godless living makes a mockery of praise. So this is how Paul prays for his church. He prays according to the grace of our God 
and the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you see the magnitude of God's grace in that last little bit? None of us, no one in this room, in this world, in this city, none of us in our own merit deserves God's good pleasure. Salvation, the consequence Christian walk in this, in this world, and the glories to come all flow from God's generous and undeserved gift that operates in the lives of all of his people. God's people will glorify and be glorified by the most exalted God and Lord, the one who stands as the true source of all things. See, the Apostle Paul again. You see how he's praying? Paul prays that the people would walk in a way that is worthy of, call, of their call, that their lives would match what they say. His prayers for the church weren't sporadic or occasional, but they were constant and faithful. Think of that faithful old member of the church you were at growing up and how they just faithfully prayed. They prayed for you and how God used those things. Paul investment, he had an investment in prayer that was robust and rigorous. He was a person of prayer who was humbly depending on the Lord. So what? This new year. How about this? You and I, we resolve to be a praying people who humbly depend on our Lord. How about we do that? You shouldn't have to wait for a new year to do it. But how about you and I resolve to do that? Let our prayers for the church not be sporadic or occasional, but be constant and faithful. How about we invest in in our prayers with a, a robust and rigorous desire, depending upon God's grace to give us the desire to do that. Let us be a people of prayer who are humbly depending on our Lord. This is what I long for in myself, that I would be a person of prayer. His prayers for for the church, Paul's prayers for the church, again, were not sporadic. They were purposeful. His investment in prayer was robust and rigorous, not lazy and haphazard. So let me ask you this. What would it look like if we were a people of prayer? What would it look like? How would our lives look different? When we start praying according to the word of God, this is what we do on Wednesday mornings. We pick a passage and we walk through the same questions every time. What does this reveal about who God is? What is our response to this, our confession? What is our requests? God, please help me to live this way. How would our lives look any different? How would this church look different? What amazing things would God do by his spirit through his word as we are a people of prayer? What would it look like to be a people that humble themselves, ourselves before the creator and sustainer of all things in prayer? 
to seek to live lives that bring him glory. So let us this year be a people of prayer, humbly depending on our God. Let us pray constantly that we would be a people that walk in a way worthy of the gospel. Let us do the the robust and rigorous hard work of prayer because our God is worth it. Because he can do anything. And how dare I say to you, be this and not give you any resources to do it. There's a couple of things. A few. There's an app. (laughs) You laugh. But it's done wonders for my prayer life. It's called PrayerMate. It's free. You can download it. Helps organize your prayers. You can put prayers in it. You know all those times you say, hey, I'll pray for you, and then you forget about it? It'll help you keep yourself organized. You can pray for your church in an organized way. If you need help with that, I, I love helping people with those things. But it's called Prayer Mates, and it helps us pray according to God's word. There's another book called Prayer by John. I'm not even going to attempt to say his last name. I think, we, I think it's the orange book that's right up there. I can see it. <laughs> On how praying together shapes the church. It's released by Nine Marks. It's a small little book like the Blue Members one that we give out. So for most of you who read a lot faster than me, you could probably get it done in a day. Or there's a book of prayers like the Valley of Vision. I love that book. The Valley of Vision. Reading People who are a long time dead, prayers. And how they just seek out God. And just humble themselves before him. It refreshes my soul. And convicts me. And reminds me of God's grace. Join us in one of our prayer meetings on Wednesday mornings. And Sunday mornings. Hey, I can't come out to Sunday mornings. Because I work. Well, you don't work Sunday morning, so come out Sunday morning. This new year, let us resolve to be a praying people, humbly depending on our Lord. I'm so reminded of how Jonathan Edwards opens up his, his resolutions. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. I guarantee it, God's will for your life is that you would be a praying person. So this year, you and me, we'll do this together. Let us resolve to be a praying people. Humbling, depending, humbly depending upon our Lord. And let's see what God does. Let me pray. Father God, we just praise you for who you are and what you have done. May we be a people of prayer. May we be a people that depend upon you and what you have done, knowing that all of this is, is only done by your grace, that we can only do this through your strength. Lord, give us the desire to be people of prayer. Lay a burden on our hearts that cannot be shaked by 
binge-watching Netflix. Lord, may we be a people of prayer. May we be marked by that. And may we just be in awe of what you will do in us and through us as we humble ourselves before you in prayer. And amen.